Welcome to season two of the Latinx Kid Lit Book Festival. We hope you enjoy this panel discussion. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Latinx Kid Lit Book Festival. Leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms to help us improve with each season. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the 2021 Latinx Killet Book Festival. My name is Ismay Williams. I am your moderator for today. And before we start, I just want to point out our anti-harassment policy, which is dropped into the chat box. Please take a look. Now, thank you all for joining us. This event is brought to you by our sponsor, Penguin Random House. They have created a digital educator gift bag. So it is your lucky day. You will find the link to all of these wonderful resources also in the chat. Uh, and also as part of our lovely introduction, I would like to start by um, ceding the stage to Judith Huerta, who is part of the school and library marketing team at Penguin Young Readers. She's also very excited to be part of today's event. Judith, take it away. Thank you, Ismay, for the introduction. And hello, everyone. I am so happy that you're all joining us for tonight's discussion. Here at Penguin, we're always trying to support our Latinx creators in any way possible. So please be sure to check out all the resources that we are offering, such as the tote bag item that Ismay mentioned and was shared in the chat, um, where you can find lots of great material, including an educator guide to David's two border, My Two Border Towns, um, written by Lorena. And if you're interested in hearing more from us after this, I'm sure what I'm sure will be a brilliant discussion. Um, you can catch us in between panels later this week. We have Penguin editor Andrew Carr in conversation with acclaimed author Philippe Dietrich about his new book, Diamond Park. That will be on the creation and creativity panel tomorrow at 2 p.m. as well as a book talk where we go through a few of our favorite books by Latinx creators on the Magical Realism panel on Friday at 10 a.m. For more resources, you can always visit us at penguinclassroom.com. We're constantly updating the site with materials, materials for you to use, and you can al also always reach out to us if you have questions. We'd love to hear from you. And once again, thank you all for tuning in, and a special thank you to the Latinx Kidlet Book Fest team for allowing us to be this year's sponsor. Now, back over to you, Ismay. Yay! So again, I'm so excited to be here. This is going to be a fantastic, fantastic discussion. And I also want to give a huge kudos to all of you who've tuned in because it shows that you think that diversifying the curriculum in the classroom is important. And so we are all excited to talk about this. So um, again, I am Ismay Williams. I am one of the co-founders of the Latinx Kidlet Book Festival, along with Mayra Cuevas and Alex Yacente. And it is my extreme privilege to be here today to moderate the discussion with uh, Lorena Germán, who is a two-time nationally awarded Dominican-American educator focused on anti-racist and anti-bias education. She's been featured in the New York Times, NPR, PBS, Rethinking Schools, Ed Week, Learning for Justice Magazine, and more. Lorena has published The Anti-Racist Teacher, a reading instruction workbook, as well as Textured Teaching, a framework for culturally sustaining practices about curriculum and lesson development focused on social justice. Lorena is a co-founder of Disrupt Texts and the Multicultural Classroom. Lorena is also the chair of NCTE's Committee Against Racism and Bias in the Teaching of English. 
Lodena lives in Tampa, Florida, where she is a mommy and wife, two of her most important roles. Lodena, thank you so much for being here with us today. So happy to be here. Yay. And I also want to introduce David Bowles, the illustrious David Bowles, who is an associate professor and coordinator of the English education program at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. David is the award-winning author and translator of more than two dozen books for children and teens. Among them, They Call Me Widow and My Two Border Towns. David's work has been published in multiple anthologies, plus venues including the New York Times, the English Journal, the School Library Journal, Rattle, Translation Review, and the Journal of Children's Literature. In 2019, David co-founded the activist movement Dignidad Literaria to fight for the literary and cultural dignity of Latinx people in U.S. publishing and education. David can be contacted through his website, www.davidpoles.us. Thank you so much, David, for being here. Yay, I'm super excited. Yay. All right, so I'm going to start it start us off i'm going to try and frame our whole conversation and so i forgot to sort of give you a little bit more background about me i am also a young adult author i have two young adult books this train is being held and water in may but my day job is actually a pediatric cardiologist so i'm going to put on my pediatrician hat for a moment and um just you know talk a little bit about the impact of racism on the health of children and adolescents. And I'm going to share with you the American Academy of Pediatrics policy statement on racism. So Abby, if you wouldn't mind bringing up the slides. Next slide, please. And we're gonna drop a link to this article in the, in the chat. So this is, this is a very dense article. So just, just to give you some background, a policy statement is formed by experts in the field. So the the Academy of Pediatrics taps people with a broad range of knowledge who are you know, internationally renowned. They get together as part of a committee, they do all the research that is, um, and they, they pull forward important articles on, on a specific topic. In this case, it's the impact of racism. And then they form this sort of mission statement. So this is the policy statement. I'm gonna pull out a couple of salient uh, topics. Um, or points to to really ground the conversation so that you all understand that you know what you do in the school is is super important. Uh, next slide, please, Abby. Okay, so as we all know, racism has a profound impact on the health of children and their families. This is both physical and mental health. Um, so at this point, I'm not going to actually talk about what racism is. We have some great recommended readings. If you're interested, we're going to drop some titles in the in the chat box. Thank you, Lorena, for suggesting that. Um, I also want to point out that there are resources in the digital gift bag that Penguin Young Readers has has provided. So please um, please look for those in there. Um, so. We all understand that children who are the targets of racism bear the highest negative impact of this. But what is less widely understood is that bystanders are also adversely affected by racism. So research has shown that racism has a negative effect on health across all racial groups in communities that have very high levels of racism. So basically everybody loses. So it's, it's not a good situation. But the corollary is also true. And this is the good news that racially diverse environments 
including schools, for instance, can benefit all youth by improving cognitive skills such as critical thinking and problem solving. And I would add to that list empathy. That's why I sort of put that in italics. That's not the AP, that, that's, that's me. I, I put that in there. That's like my author sliding that in there. Um, so let's talk about why schools are important. You all are here, a lot of you, I assume almost everybody in our audience is, is an educator or a teacher or librarian. So again, thank you. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but you all know how important school is, how important the school environment is to child development. Most of the milestones that happen, so much of the formative experiences happen in and around the school. And you know, it's this is why school is such a great setting for you know child and young adult books, movies. Like there, there's a lot of, of richness in there of experience. So a lot of important things happen in the school. Um, but beyond that, it's important to realize that research shows that educational achievement really predicts long-term health outcomes as well as economic outcomes. And I'm, I'm gonna pull out just one factoid from this AAP um, policy statement, which is that adults who graduate from college, adults with college degrees, have um, have better health and they have le a lower incidence of chronic disease than adults who do not graduate from college. So that's just one little one little piece that that highlights the importance of educational achievement to sort of your long-term quality of life. Um, so let's let's break that down a little bit. So what actually what can impact your academic achievement, your educational achievement? There are two main things that the policy statement highlights. One is a school's racial climate. So what does that mean? That's sort of like the norms about the school, sort of the interactions and discussions that happen about race or diversity, um, the curriculum, for instance. So these things are all very important and they can impact long-term academic outcomes. And the other thing, which I also wanna highlight because I wanna throw all the kudos at all of you educators, is the teacher-child interaction. So even early teacher-child interactions impact long-term academic outcomes. So the relationship between a student and a teacher influences school adjustment, it influences literacy, math skills, grade point average, scholastic aptitude scores, the list goes on and on. So you teachers, you're like superheroes. You have so much power to, um, influence the entire trajectory of a child's life and therefore the life of their future family. And then the last point that I'm gonna I'm going to highlight is this um, this really nice idea of you know what you do in the school and how the school um, talks about diversity and you know anti-racist teaching can really serve as a buffer for all the discrimination that students can face outside of the school. So again, a positive racial energy can really counterbalance any other incidents of discrimination. Uh, next slide, please, Abby. So I'll leave you with this. This is a final takeaway point that the AAP gave to pre, uh, pediatricians. They said, okay, pediatricians go out there and I, we want you to do this. But honestly, when I'm reading this also, you know, I have my author hat, I have my, my pediatrician hat. I'm thinking, you know, this is actually an action point that is better suited to teachers and educators. So they are asking us to infuse cultural diversity into literacy and um, promotion programs to ensure that there is a representation of authors, images, and stories that reflect the cultural diversity of all children. So again, American Academy of Pediatrics, 
supports you, supports what you're doing. So thank you again, everybody who is tuned in. I'm so excited for this discussion to get underway. I'm going to turn it back to uh, Lorena and David to take it away. Awesome. Well, I mean, what a what a fascinating way to to kind of ground this conversation in like the physical and emotional reality that students are facing. Um, because a lot of people tend to kind of like poo-poo this argument altogether and they're like, oh, you're just being woke, oh, you're being performative, oh, there, I mean, there's there's no mm -hmm. hardship that are really being encountered mm -hmm. in literature classrooms by making these children read um canonical literature, blah, 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 blah. And so you know, that kind of stuff is refreshing. And, and, and I think it's a great opening salvo for this conversation. Yeah, um, we um, kind of in, in thinking about how we're going to have this conversation, um, Lorena and Isme and I came up with some, some basic kind of conversation starters. So um, let's go ahead and pull that first one up um, on the screen so that we can can dive in. Lorena, you want to uh, read it and maybe kind of like get us started? Sure. Um, these are these are different statements that we first of all believe in and agree on, and statements that we think also affirm for teachers the choices that they should be making, and that um, can function as like uh, pillars, if you will, for thinking about your practice and your profession. So the first one, you know, it's necessary to understand Latinx identity especially when teaching books by and about us. Um, and one of the reasons why I think this is important is because there's so much misunderstanding about who we are as a people in this country. It's 2021 and people still don't understand that we are many different nationalities and each nation with its own very rich, complicated uh, history right, and identity and cultural praxis, right? Like, whatever, I'm not gonna get into all the details of what's different between this group and that group. But what I will say is that all of a sudden, when we come to this country, when we end up in the United States, two people that outside of the United States might only have some Spanish in common, not even the full, you know, way of how they speak Spanish, uh, that's all that we'd have in common outside of the United States. But here in the U.S., we're supposed to be one homogeneous group that can be marketed to one way, that all likes the same stuff, we listen to the same music, we, like, we have the same values, and we've got a culture, yeah. right? And so it's so important for educators to understand how all of that is incorrect. <laughs> yeah. So that in, in selecting a range of texts, that is supposed to represent the diversity that we are, right? Like then it, that's how they're gonna get to a more holistic and accurate representation and then do a better job with their students. Um, I remember reading this one book I was supposed to be writing a review for and as they say in Texas, bless her heart, <laughs> that lady that wrote the book, um, you know, I'm sure she's smart, but she fell right into that. And she, you know, her book was supposed to be about how to support Hispanic learners. And the entire book was about Mexicans, Mexican students. And I'm sitting there thinking like, this has nothing to do with Dominicans sitting in New York, right? What, what are they supposed to, what are Cubans in Miami supposed to do with this? Um, you know, and so I think that as teachers start to think about, oh, I, you know, I really want to have more Latinx literature and more Latinx voices. Well, they, the first thing you need to do is think about what are some of the books that you're selecting 
even within this group? And are you ensuring a range of representation? Are all of the books that you're bringing in that are Latinx about immigrants crossing the border? Like, is that, is that the totality of your books? Because that's not all that we are. Yeah. I think I, this is an incredibly important point. Um, and it's this is something we've been struggling with for, you know, more than 100 years. Um, you know, it first all being called Spanish or, or and then, you know, then for a while it was Latin Americans and then it was Latins. And, then it was Latins. And then and, and, and invariably it's always been Mexicans. Like wherever you go, they hear a word of Spanish. You're like, oh, you're Mexican, aren't you? And I'm sure that's happened to you, Lorena, um, on more than one occasion. And, um, you know, even though, so, I mean, what happens in the U.S. is by design, not maybe in intentional design but by the way the system has evolved over time and frankly the way it was set up to be is the it needs to have a monolithic white identity and so it needs to other any competing identities it, although they shouldn't be competing but that's the way the setup competing for power competing for hegemony right it needs to to put them in one basket so like you know um all all asian americans are like this and all uh, Latin American people are like this and all black people are like this and all native Americans are like this because then it becomes easier for white hegemony to, to deal with them. And when, it, when you take those communities seriously, when you're working with children from those communities or when you're trying to promote anti-bias, anti-racism, you know, anti-discrimination in your classroom and like a, and kind of like equity and parity um, that, that is essential for the, you know, the like pluralistic, um, democracy that I think the majority of us really want to see in this country, um, you know, notwithstanding the, the rise of uh, right-wing fascism. Um, I'm assuming that most of us in this conversation are, are not with those guys. Um, we, you have to like learn, you have to, you have to open yourself up. You have to, to admit that you, if, especially, I mean, this is true even for Latinx people. Like we have to say, you know what, I'm, I'm Chicano, I'm Mexican American. I, the only, the, I mean, I, I have friends who are Dominican. I, you know, I, I grew up with some, uh, some, you know, a couple of Dominican families here in the Valley, but for the most part, that's an identity that is very different from mine. And though we share things mm -hmm. and though it's necessary, I mean, because this is also an important point, it's necessary for sociopolitical solidarity for us to see one another as, as siblings, as, as, mm -hmm. you know, people who are working together in the same fight. It is true that we, that our, our identities are different. And so people, you know, outsiders looking in, or even people within, under that umbrella, you know, need to keep that in mind. Um, and, you know, obviously diversity in the classroom serves two purposes, right? It serves um, to, to, to provide, you know, representation for the students that are in that classroom, but also to expose students to other types of identities. So while it is true that you wouldn't want to fill, uh, you know, a classroom in, in Brooklyn with a bunch of border crossing stories, when most of the students, you know, are having like Dominican, Cuban, Puerto Rican, and so forth, um, having one or two is not a bad idea because those Latinx students need to know about the Central uh, and South American and Mexican experience as well. They, you know, there are commonalities that they'll be able to identify with and there are universal human elements in those as well. And we all need to be aware of one another and to care about one another and to celebrate the value of our lives, the value of our ways of being, our ways of knowing the world. 
um, that's the only way that we can have like peace and, and happiness and joy in, in this country is, is for us to begin to see one another as deeply human. And you don't get that way any other way except by exposing children to literature in which, you know, that authentically portray the lives of, of people that are like them and people that are different from them, but that are different also from what they see mirrored around them all the time, which is this artificial whiteness, right? I mean, I've you know, talked a lot about how I can't wait until, you know, we dismantle white hegemony and then white people can stop being white people. It can start being what their people are, you know, and there's been this deal with the devil well, that, you know, started in the mid 19th century um, as immigrant groups, you know, as white people became like the smaller and smaller sliver of the population of the United States. And so suddenly like, oh, hey, you could be white. Um, oh, uh, you're you're Italian-American. And that's all right. You're white. Uh, you're green. Oh, you're white. Polish whites. Come on. And that's been dangled in front of, you know, white presenting Latinx people a lot as well. Um, and um, I think the, the, the continued waves of immigration and our, and our connection to our homelands mitigate against that to some extent. But yeah, you, you you can't work with Latinx students. You can't bring literature in that you think is going to be good for them and make them see themselves as readers and writers and flourish as thinkers um, unless you understand yourself. You have to, to, to do the research and, you know, follow Latinx educators and thinkers on Twitter. And I mean, social media is just a wonderful place for you to become informed. If you just like follow the right people and listen instead of like being ready to speak and to and to show yourself as an ally listen first and learn um so that you can do good work yeah i you know i'll also plug the uh okay no go ahead no i was just gonna plug the um the latinx kidlet book festival database which is on our website which was the, the brainchild of like and Kemp. The, the attempt was to collect all the different books written by Latinx authors and to present them in an easily searchable database by um, age group themes, country of origin of, of creator, country of origin of the, of the protagonist. So like for instance, if you're, if a librarian or a school teacher is looking for, I don't know, like an Ecuadorian student um, who maybe is dealing with divorce or I don't know, like there could, there are so many different scenarios, but that's another resource that is available to you if you're looking to, you know, stretch yourself a little bit and to look into different, different slices of Latinx types of books. All I was going to add before we move on to the next point um, is that a lot of times we, oof, I mean, whatever, we could talk about this forever, right, David? But I think sometimes these conversations around the emphasis and need for uh, literature that is diverse, right, across a range of representations is one that is either had with or aimed at white educators, which I think is most certainly a needed conversation. But I think that also for those of us who were raised here or who went to or who went to school here, those of us that are Latino, when I say us and we, I'm talking about us and we, okay? <laughs> um, so for those of us that, that, are educators, it's because we probably also went to school here. And so we were also taught by this very system. And so we are going to teach in the way that we were taught and we're going to practice the things that were practiced on us. And so I don't think that we are exempt from this conversation either um, because we walk in as educators sometimes with our own biases. 
I, I don't know that it's always at the same level, but certainly we need to also assess what is my curriculum? What are the books that I'm selecting? Am I portraying um, a representation that is accurate of who Latinx people are? Um, you know, am I really relying on the one book and the one unit to supposedly represent the totality of who we are in this nation? That can't be done because we're not a monolith. That just can't, the same with, with black, you know, if you, your black unit, that's just not going to work unless you have six different novels that kids can really sit around and, and discuss many different angles and facets of, of what it means to be black in this country. Right. And so if you are doing that, where you have a unit and you have six different books that kids can choose from, and you're doing like literary circles, now we're kind of talking, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, unless, unless you're doing that, then we have to have the same conversation even amongst ourselves. We need to have our own in-group conversation and start taking stock, right? Um, as you were saying, what, what is the representation of blackness of, uh, of the characters featured in the story? How many of these books have the pregnant teen? How many of these books, if not all of them, have the super overly Catholic mother who hates everybody else, right? Because they're not Catholic, right? Like there's these tropes that we end up finding. And it's not that they're like, I don't want to cancel these books at all. I'm just saying, can we get a diverse a range, a range of representation in the books that you're selecting in your class? I think it, it is important to think about all that and to to be conversant with like maybe some of the um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Some of some of the fraught titles that are out there, some of the problematic things and, mm. and be aware that um, especially when you, you know, go back a couple of decades, you may encounter books with Latinx content that that are not going to be the best thing that are perhaps not going to be mm -hmm. optimal. Um, that if you're going to use, you're going to want to use in conversation with other texts, um, mm -hmm. because we're trying to get it right as well. Like you say, I mean, um, there's this phenomenon yeah. that that um, and that we'll, I will go into a little bit more uh, yeah. some of the other points, but this idea that <clears throat> people that make it, like you say, into positions of authority as educators or as school leaders or as you know published authors or editors or whatever, they tend to be outliers even within their own community. And so a lot of the Latinx people who made their way through the, you know, the white hegemonic um, school system and, and publishing world and so forth, and, and were able to finally get through the gates and get something out in front of kids. Like, I'm not gonna say that we've had to make compromises, but, but mm -hmm. there are things that have happened that have distanced us a little bit sometimes from um, the communities that we arise from. And a, a lot of us are just doing the work to try to, to recenter ourselves and to make sure that we open the doors to voices that perhaps don't have to, that can be pulled up by people who've already gone through that and maybe made some compromises that we wish that other people didn't have to make. Um, so yeah, like it, it, these are things you have to be informed of. You cannot just assume um, that, you know, and I mean, just the, the term Latinx itself is a, clearly a lot of people will see yeah. in social media, this debate within the community mm -hmm. about the term and so people who are who are in the community, people who are outside, can sometimes get distracted by those things and lose sight of mm -hmm. you know, the real work, which is trying to make sure that that students, you know, if if what Ismay was pointing out at the beginning is is true, and you know, we have a lot of experts saying that it's true, uh, that the relationship between the teacher and the students and the the you know the 
centrality of the student's identity and culture in the classroom are the things that make students academically successful and that academic success leads to better health and so forth, then, then that's the work we need to be doing. We're not churning out English majors. And that's, you know, I, I have to say this a lot and I hate to be like one of these meanies, but English teachers who are listening to me now, your job is not to make English majors. The majority of the students that come through your classes will not go on to study English at the university. It's so sad, but it's okay. Yeah, we wish the whole universe were English majors. Uh, I don't know that we would be eating anything, but we'd have interesting conversations. Um, yeah, so your job is not to turn out English majors. Your job is to make people into readers and writers, to see themselves as readers and writers and thinkers, and so that they can live lives that are fuller and richer um, because of that. So, you know, keeping those things in mind, you have to, there's work that, that has to be done. Um, mm -hmm. And yes, it's hard. Like, it's hard for us as well. Like, you know, we're educators with a particular identity. When I was a teacher for 14 years, and when I was teaching literature, uh, you know, the, from different Asian American communities or from the Black community or from the Native American community and so forth, I had to do the work too. I had to read ahead of time. Advent. You know, one of the cool things, Lorena, um, about this, like you were talking about the six books in a unit, is all the cool and YA anthologies that are coming mm -hmm. in, right? Mm -hmm. Awesome. Mm -hmm. um, I'm in a, a couple uh, recent ones and then Reclaim the Stars that, that Soraida has edited coming out in February. And I just, I read the stories and I'm like, oh my God, that we, I wish I were a middle school, high school teacher right mm -hmm. now. Just so much, like you putting yeah. it together now, um, so it would be so much easier than it was yeah. in the yeah. late 90s, early 2000s when I was teaching. Oh yeah, for sure. All right, what's our next bullet point? I can't remember. Ooh. Well, we kind of have been talking about it. Yeah, we kind of already eased into this. So yeah, let's 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 dig in some more. Yeah. I think um let me let me say this, which we haven't touched upon. When we're selecting these books, specifically Latinx ones, I'm gonna talk about the big scary monster called critical race theory for a second. Not because I want anybody to teach that to little children. Um but because one of the tenets of CRT is counter storytelling. And what I think is really important about that concept is that it is through counter storytelling that we can center truth, right? Truth narratives or true stories in our classrooms. There are a lot of stereotypes in this country about who we are and who we are not, which are the lies. And right. so the books that we select should center the truth. Right. We should be intentional about telling the truth about Latinx people in this country in a way that dismantles stereotypes and affirms the Latinx students sitting in front of you. If from this unit or from this school year where you have explored the variety and range or or maybe not all of it, but like several opportunities where I have been affirmed. Right. Then I'm going to be better, as these may explain to us. Right physically, mentally, and emotionally. And then the whole class is gonna be better for it because when we see these stereotypes, they don't become the totality of our, my understanding or our understanding of who this group of people is in this country. And so it actually starts to dismantle some of the ideas and the ideologies that exist that keep us where we are, that are at the core and the foundation of the way that systemic oppression works. I know I'm going really high level, but I'm hopeful that people understand the the need and the impact for how this works. I remember um, a unit that I taught, and it was actually 
at a predominantly white school. And we had just finished reading a graphic novel called American Born Chinese by Jean Luen Yang. And I was very intentional about selecting that book for a number of reasons, one of which because we had uh, Chinese students there. We we had um, like international, they live in China and are here studying, okay? And I was aware of a lot of the microaggressions that they were experiencing. I was aware of the ignorance that our students, or let me say it this way, of, that the American students possessed and unfortunately unleashed on them knowingly and unknowingly, right? And so I figured, let me use our subject matter, our content area to engage in this larger conversation in a way that doesn't feel necessarily confrontational. I could have been like, school assembly, all of you people, this is what you, right? Like I could have gone that route and there were moments where I wanted to, not gonna lie. Um, but instead I said, let me use my classroom and let me use our subject matter to help them understand the world around them in a way that is practical and in a way that is useful and in a way that is healing and helpful. And so we you know, read the book, we did a whole bunch of different types of learning activities and, and processed it. And I remember two, two things on separate years. One, there was a kid who, whew, in towards the end, we were like synthesizing and processing our learning and the whole unit. And one of the things he said was last week, and he aired the joke that he had made about one of those students to their face. I remember wanting to die. Now, the kid was not in the room um, and it was in the, in the middle of him talking about how he did not know before, how horrible that was. And now he understands and his plan to make atonement with that kid. So it was like a super vulnerable moment, but like that is what our education is supposed to do. The other moment that comes to mind was um, it was after school and I'm sure these teachers will, you know, for those of you that are teachers, you, you'll know how sometimes there'll be a couple kids in the room and you can tell like they want to talk to you, but they're just acting cool. Like they're just hanging out. Um, and so I was like, all right, fine. I'll stay here and just let it happen. And so he, you know, eventually one of the boys comes over and he says to me, like, you know, I, I really enjoyed this book. I learned so much. I'd never considered. I had no idea. This is 20, like 2015. Um, and he says, I had no idea about the model minority myth. And I didn't know that what was supposed to be a good stereotype could actually be a bad stereotype. And I'm like, if, if nothing else happened <laughs> in this past month, if that happened, I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. Yeah. I love those kinds of anecdotes and, and, and I love, work that allows us to explode um stereotypes like the like the the, the wise the shamanistic latina right which is kind of like the the magic negro trope, uh, trope right where you know they, they, oh my god look there's representation there is this elderly woman who wields man yeah but she's like that's not a human being what you have there is just like this this symbol this you know this thing an object that is there to provide information to the rest of the characters so that they can, and that's not, you know, representation. And, you know, I, I love this notion that you've set forth about using books to dismantle stereotypes, but also like deploying them strategically in moments so that you're not like explicitly beating people over the head with it, which is, you know, why the whole like book banning- um, Hi, David. Thing that has, 
that started going on is, is like really upsetting me because these are the tools that teachers have been using to in like subtle respectful ways address like the reality with students whose parents would be appalled by like just direct like you know like preaching to them about white privilege and things like that like but using books to show the humanity of people other than their identity in a way to just you know bring people around to caring about them and seeing them as human um and and just and having difficult conversations that uh, that arise from students own conversations with the text their own dialogue with the text right uh when you take those when you take those tools away you, you're asking for you're asking for trouble because those kids need to learn this and if and if we we can't teach if we can't use books that way then it becomes difficult but i also i also want to say in the selection of texts that we can't always people from communities of color have kind of been historically obligated to write like you know issue books to the center mm -hmm. yes oh and, my goodness right? david yes <laughs> and while i i would say probably the majority of my books are like weighty books that like grapple with you know tough things i also like to write lighter fluffier things i want to i and, you know i want there to be a balance and so I encourage teachers as well when thinking about Latinx literature to not just go after all of the, you know, heart-wrenching, you know, difficult, you know, life-changing, you know, mind-blowing books, but also things that are, that are just like joyful and, and fun and just, you know, like a, just a, like, kind of like an adventure, a ride, because that kind of literature, like we have a right to, to create that kind of literature as well. And people, and I think that kids being exposed to that who are not from our community are likely to go, oh, snap. Do you mean like Latinx people, like you guys live these kinds of lives? You have these kinds of ideas? You you, you know, you produce this kind of like really, excuse my language, badass uh, content? I want more of that, please, you know? It's like the, the Black Panther phenomenon, you know? And um, mm -hmm. I, I, that's I want to see that as well. And um, I want us to find, I eventually want us to come to a point where where we can have tons of authors who are some of whom are writing issue books, some of whom are just like writing frothy, fun stuff, um, and, and others who are finding a, you know a happy medium in between those two extremes. Um, but right now, it is true that the majority of books you're going to find, the majority of books that make their way through the mill, <clears throat> because they have to to pass muster with the white gaze a lot of times, right, are going to be a little bit more about the hardships, mm -hmm. uh, because that's the thing that tugs at the heart of. Mm -hmm of you know of a particular demographic of progressive that wants to feel that they understand and and can and are doing something to fix the problem right and i don't have anything against that i mean that's wonderful please help donate money do good did good deeds whatever right um but it's not true that our lives are like miserable um you know it's not like it's moment after moment of like oppression and misery and and you know fighting against the white hegemony you know our lives are full of like just love and fun and and sometimes you know arguments and and you know spats with your your spouse and your diaz and whatever you know it's <laughs> normal lives absolutely normal lives mm -hmm. um and depicting that the specificity of those lives is, I think, again, what leads to the universally human, you know, we always get to the universal through the specific. And, and I think about like canonical texts, um, Lorena, like, you know, like the Odyssey or like, I don't know. Um, uh, Gatsby, 
Mockingbird. Yeah, yeah all of them by Shakespeare. All of these the are outsiders. They're all culturally specific, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And so through the specificity of that moment in time, mm -hmm. 2,500 years ago or 3,000 years ago or whatever, you know, the U.S. Um, 100 years ago, whatever mm -hmm. it happens to be, you, like students have to like study the historical um, context of, of the books they're reading in order to be able to understand those things. The, the same thing is is true with this kind of literature, right? That through the specifics we get at the universal, and we're we're perfectly happy to say, the Great Gatsby is is literature, and and the Odyssey is, and um and that To Kill a Mockingbird is, but people are, are like less likely to say that about things that are specifically about a group from a community of color. So I mean, it's it's this interesting kind of thing, right? But again, the dichotomy, literature, right. and and like popular fiction, I guess we could say. I, I want those to exist side by side in a classroom. Um, that's why I do things like, you know, I, I'll write something like, you know, my two border towns, which is like grappling with, you know, identity on the border and, and immigration and asylum seekers, and just all of this complex stuff in, in a picture book, which you know, did a great job creating a, a teacher guide for. Thank you so much. Um, and- I am uh, with Fossey because that was such a great book. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to mutually pat ourselves on the back right now. No, but actually, <laughs> ah, so David, I wanted to jump in and also say that some of the, um, I completely agree with you about the issues books. And some of the problems are that um, books that tend to win awards that are recognized tend to be the issues books. And those are the ones that are more um, visible, right, to people who maybe aren't Latinx. Right. Bestsellers tend to be like more of the popular ones. And that, not like there's a whole bunch of Latinx bestsellers. I'm not saying that, but they, the ones that do make it to the bestseller list tend to be a little bit less issuey and a little bit more of like poppy. So. so let me just, there's so much to say. I want to say two things. One is that one of the, one of the things that I, that keeps coming to mind as I listen to all of you, which I expand upon and talk about in the anti-racist teacher is this phenomenon of, um, you know, this, this idea that in our quest, to try and elicit sympathy and empathy from students, we present particular groups through the lens of defeat, through this issue of pain and, and these social issues. And, and so that creates this deficit narrative, which comes from the work of Dr. Eve Tuck. She's an indigenous scholar who published this essay called um, Suspending Damage. If somebody wants to find it and drop it in there, you can do it. Um, but but all that is to say that I know that I was even guilty of that, right? In wanting to portray the authentic experience of, you know, insert group, I kept presenting these struggles and issues so that students would be like, I understand, I am empathetic. And so at the end, all they thought was that this group, you know, that was the only lens. It was that white gaze lens, that colonizer lens, to go back to your point. And so we have to think about that. Why is it that the books I continue to choose in my class, um, you know, that are about folks of color, tend to always come from that angle, Ismay, to your point? Why are those the ones that are getting so much attention? Why are publishers jumping on that so much more quickly? Because it continues to actually sustain the stereotype about us, right? And it represents us in the same way on and on. And that's a lot of the work that we discuss with the Sharp Text, specifically about these canonical texts, right? So I'm gonna get on a soapbox momentarily, and I, you know, just for a minute, um, 
and and this is what I have to say about that. You can go through. Let me let me even rephrase that. A teacher can go through four years of canonical texts and not have, after four years, legitimate Latinx representation. You can even go a full year of school if you select just canonical texts and not have any Latinos in your text that year. So we're either absent or misrepresented. Oh, but those were people of their time. And you're telling me that nowhere else around the world we were writing about ourselves and that nobody was writing about us through a culturally competent lens? No, these are the voices that they continue to select because of a million reasons, right? It's classical, it's universal. But to, to go back to your point, David, we have culturally decided that those are universal. So a group of black and brown kids in a certain community is supposed to read Fahrenheit 451 and be like, work work so hard, right? And step outside of their own bodies to try to connect with these characters. But we can't have students do that, for example, with Beloved. They just can't do that. We can't have students do that with, que se yo, they're right watching God. They can't do that, right? And, and then what I'll say is, it's important to your point about the tokenism in these, in these um, you know, that can happen in these stories with, with people of color is that we do start to see that in those canonical texts, right? We might see the wise sage, and I'm, in, and I'm gonna use a terrible term, but like Indian, right? Cause that's how they're labeled. Um, in a lot of these books, you might have that. Maybe you have some type of day worker named Jose, right? Depending on the book. Um, or we're talked about in very general terms, right? Like those people in that neighborhood. And everybody knows who they're talking about. We're just not going to even name them. Yeah. Right? We get to just be a mist of <laughs> scariness that's dark over there. Um, and so, uh -huh. and so, you know, after four years, though, kids who have read the canonical text are very well read. Claro que no. Claro que you're not. Right. And so, you know, it's important for us to to as teachers. I'm talking to the teachers right now as teachers to say, I have been given this curriculum. I have been told that these are the good texts, that these are the good books that that are worthy of, of academic study that have merit, literary merit. Well, how are they treating the world? How are they treating me? How do I myself as a as a Dominican teacher fit into this curriculum? Because if I don't, what am I doing teaching it? You know? Yeah. And I don't want to get into the the pushback and the complications of like, you know, you don't have any support. I, I that's a bigger conversation. But just like just hopefully creating a sense of awareness so that people understand that it is okay to push back, that if it didn't feel comfortable, it's because it's not comfortable, you know, and that we have to make demands. And then I'm gonna turn it to you, David, so that you can speak on this and how this works. But teachers and librarians specifically have a lot of power in terms of what gets published. The books that we decide to use are the ones that are going to get attention. Publishers will say, oh, this book is selling. Let's print 50 more of those. That's exactly right. Um, the, you know, we, we think a lot about gatekeeping um, and in terms of like agents and editors and so forth. But in reality, it's when we're talking about kid lit, it's schools that are decisive in the things that publishers are gonna publish because you know, at the end of the day, the bottom line is what matters. Um, and, you know, I have books published by Penguin Random House. They're um, 
posting this, you know, underwriting this and, and they do good work. But at the end of the day, they're a business. They're trying to make money. Right. Um, and we can't escape that. And so when librarians and teachers pay attention to the need for diverse texts and purchase those and incorporate them into the curriculum, you know, those purchases go, they, they, they do two things, right? They, there's an effect downstream that we've been talking about that, that is, you know, positive for students, but there's an upstream effect that uh, recoils into the industry and makes them rethink um, their acquisition ideas and so forth. So they're like, okay, right now, all across this country, people are buying books by authors from communities of color in droves. And mm -hmm. these Latinx books are selling really well. Um, here we have some editors pitching other novels by Latinx authors Let's take these things a little more seriously. We need to we need to acquire more. We haven't acquired enough. I mean, Penguin House themselves recently published a study about um, their acquisition and their editorial staff admitting, "Hey, we we're we're far from where we need to be." Um, and so they're going to listen to the demand that's out there. It is going to move that capitalist system in a way that no amount of external like activism can that we just desperately need for teachers to, and for school boards, frankly, um, which is kind of a little scary to, to, to okay the purchase of these kinds of books. Um, because that's, that's, what's going to make the difference. Um, to your point about the, you know, the canon and so forth, I am the coordinator of the English education program down here in South Texas at the university of Texas Rio Grande Valley. And so I'm working with pre-service teachers, um, who are English majors, and again, the, the, the classes that I teach them basically are about deprogramming them. I'm like, you're going into these into these classrooms, in these middle school and high school classrooms, not to, to teach the canon. The only reason to teach the canon exclusive, exclusively is to maintain cultural hegemony. What cultural hegemony is the canon? It is white European. Is that what we want? Is are we going to say the U.S. Is a white European country, which is what, of course, uh, fascists on the right who are trying to take over the country want to assert. Um, it is clearly not. You know, clearly, nearly half, you know, forty percent of the population of this country is not white European or not exclusively white European, right? So, if if we truly believe, as supposedly the founding fathers did, and suppose like the, in all of our David, <laughs> um. That this is supposed to be a pluralistic society where where there's freedom of religion, freedom of thought, freedom of assembly, um, and all these things. Then in our classrooms, we cannot have a one size fits all white European canonical curriculum. It is insane. The only reason you do that is to to erase everybody else from the conversation. Um, when all that students are exposed to is that the students from communities of color come away with this internalized notion of themselves as not worthy, as their lives are not worthy, as their community is not worthy. They are embarrassed of their parents, embarrassed of their home language, embarrassed of their traditions because they don't, they're not reflective of all the whiteness that keeps getting mirrored back at them, right? The only way to like fully bring people into complete participation as citizens of this nation and as, you know, um, co-creators of democracy year by year is to have their stories be part of the, that national conversation and have their lives worthy of academic study and in books that are being read in freaking classrooms. Um, and so anybody, 
I mean, I, I just have no tolerance for it at all. Anybody who asserts that that you can just that you we should get away with just four years of teaching canonical work in high school, I'm just like you are not even worth having a conversation with, because you like you're starting from a point of such supreme ignorance rooted in such deep um, structural racism. Like maybe you personally don't go around calling people the N word and calling uh, Latinx, you know, calling Mexicans. Beers. But you use books that do. But you use books that do. And you are promoting a system that encourages that kind of despective um, setting aside of people who are not included in, in those books. So, I mean, I, I, to me, it is, you know, this is, you know, this is the trouble that the trouble that you and I got in with trolls last year that resulted in all kinds of like really annoying consequences for us. But I know that you're like me and we're not going to back down because of that. We're going to continue to speak truth to power. And to encourage teachers to be courageous and to do what is right for kids instead of what, whatever they, they what what's been done to them, basically, um, you know, it's like this attitude that people have when somebody brings up, let's, you know, let's go ahead and cancel all student debt under fifty thousand dollars. People are like, well, I just finished paying my student debt. What the hell are you talking about? So because you suffered, you want other people to suffer? How inhuman is that? No. If there's an opportunity for people to to not go through what you went through, then why wouldn't you let them have it? Why wouldn't you let them have it? it just it is it just strikes me as nauseating that kind of perspective. Of like I suffered, so you're going to suffer too. Um, you know, or, or this is the way I was taught. So now everybody has to be taught that way. My parents, you know, spanked me, so I'm going to spank my children. It's like this, this this repetition of things that, without any thought and reflection, um, lead to a dehumanization of an othering of people who are not like us or who are not like the models that we've been given. You know, what I, what I want to add is that one of the other things that I, that I'll usually break down for folks in terms of the, the issues with the canon. And let me just say too, that I'm not necessarily like completely anti-canon, right? I'm not saying don't teach any of these books. Oh yeah. I mean, um, now, if somebody is, that's fine. I support you too. Uh, but what I'm saying is, that that's not necessarily what I'm preaching. What I am saying is, is that we need to, A, remove some of them from their pedestals and stop acting like they are the pinnacle of craftsmanship, right? And because in order to bring another book in, you've got to take a book out. And, and that's the part that makes people very uncomfortable. But they're not thinking about the reverse of that. In order for you to have that book there, you're denying space for people who have been excluded historically by school, both literally, like, through literature and literally, physically, right? And so the other thing that I wanna say is that one of the issues about canonical texts is that, you know, when you look at the, the dates of publication, and I have a whole graphic for this, which I, I didn't think of uh, sharing, but I'm, I wish I did now. Uh, but I have this whole graphic where I talk about the ways that, you know, some of the most popular, like I take the top 20 books that are most commonly taught throughout US high schools. And we look at, uh, their year of publication. And many of them were published 1959 and earlier, all the way to like Shakespearean, which was in the 1600s, right? And so what? Wh why does that matter? Well, it wasn't until the 60s, at least in the United States, where we had some very important cultural revolutions. It was after that point that socially women had more power. That you know, folks who identify as members of the LGBT community could actually start to protest and speak up and advocate for themselves. It wasn't until after the 60s 
and the civil rights movement where you had a strong social shift, at least politically and legally, toward the freedom of people of color. So what so so we would be intentionally naive to not say racist, <laughs> intentionally naive to think that these books published in those times by those authors are not, not somehow influenced by their social setting. That is a, a wonderful fabrication that this society has wanted to communicate to us through our education, that these are all men, of course, who sat there and just pontificated and dreamed up a world and we can just, you know, it's free from all things in our society. That's just foolishness. Yeah, it is foolishness. Right? Everybody, when you write a book, I haven't written fiction, but I wrote other books. When you write a book, there's a little piece of yourself in that book. One way or another, whether it's a character or a sentiment or a conflict, there are pieces of you in there. And so we see that in those books as well. And, and I'm not saying don't ever teach them. You want to teach about that. But what you don't want to do is say, hey, look at this book. Ignore all the racism and the bias. And let's just really focus on how beautifully he develops conflict. Which, by the way, is racialized, but we're not going to talk about that either. Let's just let's just just look at the literature. Let's be colorblind. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I yeah, yeah. I mean, and 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 yeah. Obviously, I mean, we could go on talking about this right. for a long time, but um, you know, I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that because of the how culturally contingent books are, if we're going to have a pluralistic society, we have to have a, a cross section. That, that reflects the reality, you know? Uh, that's what diversity is. Diversity isn't like checking boxes and okay, yeah, got one Latinx book, I got one black book. No, diver diversity is um, like parody, um, like proportional parody, right? So if there are, if 20% of the population of this country is Latinx, then, you know, hey, publishing industry. <laughs> You should be putting out, you know, 20% 20 of the books you put out every year should be written by Latinx people if we're going to go for proportional parity. And other people, some people are like, oh, well, that is like imposing quotas, whatever. Mm, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, but again, to go back to what Lorena was saying is for us to get where we are, for there to have, be all these books included that are not by people from the communities that we belong to, it's because all of these stories have been left out. And so in, in, for, I know it feels abrupt to say, hey, you know what? I know that for like like a century, only like 1% of books published every year has been by Latinx people. And now you need to wrap it up to 20% like yesterday. People are like, holy shit, what do you know? Yes, I know it's hard. I know it's painful. These are conversations that Dina Literaria had with Macmillan and, and, and with, you know, I just had a phone call with Congressman Castro today talking about this kind of stuff. Yes, it's hard, but it's it's necessary. It's it's a social um, requirement in order for this country to come together the way it needs to, which is, I will repeat, as a pluralistic democracy and not as a white European republic, which is what a lot of people want it to be, and which and literally it's basically what it has been. And if and if we've pulled it away from that in any extent since the '60s, as Loden was pointing out, it's been through like the blood and tears of activists who put their bodies in front of police officers and soldiers to effect change in this country. Um, and, you know, the, the clamping down on our voices and the killing of our children um, is just a sign that people are afraid of pluralism, which is nuts because pluralism is scary. It's like, I don't know. Anyway, 
Let's move I, I to think our... people, people are afraid of the other. I mean, I think people are. are afraid of what they don't understand. They're afraid of what is different from them. And that's, that's human nature across the globe, right? Which yeah. is why books and having diverse books and exposing young people to diverse books and when possible, diverse experiences is really critical. Yep, that's right. So that they won't see others as other. That's right. So our last point, the last slide, um, Abby, if you pull it up, we have to ensure a wide range of Latinx experiences and identities. Specifically, we must be inclusive of indigenous and black voices. So let's let's talk about the the, the big elephant in the room, Lorena, about Latinidad and about mm -hmm. Latinx culture, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I think we already expanded on the, the piece about having a range of identities, but I think that it's important for us to spend a little bit more time on, um, you know, kind of just talking amongst ourselves, if you will, in yeah. terms of us doing a better job of, of ensuring that we are representing a indigeneity positively um in a way that affirms students not like in moving beyond representation mira aquí hay un indigenous person in the story and instead of simply having representation actually characters that affirm students who identify as indigenous within our community and students who are black who are afro latinos um okay. which is a huge gap um you know specifically the latter I can speak to a little bit more even than than indigeneity, which which I think you can, David, probably speak more to that. I don't know. I think based on some of the things I've seen you write about, uh, but you know, with with the Afro Latino piece, I uh, there's such confusion about that within our own community, right? Within within this this group of Latinx folks, and and who counts as what, and what does it mean, and how dark do you have to be? Um, but I think that in the end surfacing the conversation through literature is is one of the best ways to get us started in understanding ourselves right like there are absolutely too many people from the caribbean dominican specifically but oh it's the same for puerto ricans and it's the same for cubans right who who are just like no pero yo soy blanco and it's like yes you're that might be your phenotype but ethnically you're more african than you are anything else there were you know right like actually and, and the confusion even that people within our community feel, like I might be as brown as I am, but I might be darker than some African-Americans who claim blackness. Right. And so there, you know, like I think in, in instead of our community um, continuously distancing ourselves from indigeneity and from blackness as a way to position ourselves as successful, as uh, welcomed, as docile, right? As the good ones here, that's actually hurting us. And I think that instead of positioning that way, we actually need to embrace uh, our indigenous roots and our African roots. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And of course, you know, our tendency to, to do those kinds of things, to play those kinds of roles, um, you know, stems from hundreds of years of colonial subservience, right? And the colonial caste system and all these things, I mean, I think about Mexico specifically and the the, the fact that for, in reality, um, up till, you know, Mexican independence from Spain, the majority of, of people in Mexico spoke an indigenous language and, and it's essentially identified um, with a particular indigenous um, community. Afterwards, there was like this, this work in Mexico to kind of, to 
uh, you know, undermine that and to encourage people to, to think of themselves at to, to some degree or another mestizo. Now, obviously there are people that are clearly mestizo and, um, and despite the fact that there are some people who don't like the term because of the way the Mexican government and governments of other countries have used it, I think it's still a valid term. It's not a term that was invented by any of them, just like Hispanic was not invented by the U.S. government. These words that have existed for hundreds of years, going mm -hmm. back to vulgar Latin um, that have just been, you know, evolved over time into modern Spanish. But it, but it is true that allowing, um, you know, dismantling anti-Blackness and anti-indigeneity in our communities um, you know, shrugging off that that specter, that yoke of colonialism, that self-colonized kind of mentality, and embracing, as you say, indigenous roots um, in, in existing indigenous people in our communities, uh, African uh, uh, roots, and existing Black people in our communities is is only going to you know benefit everybody. Um, it's going to help mm, decolonize yourselves and to to um, to not play into what white hegemony wants, which is for white presenting people of all these groups to like buy into whiteness as a as a power thing and, and mm -hmm. to protect um, whatever Latin American or indigenous or um, African heritage they have or whatever combination, as Aisha was pointing out in, in her comments a second ago um, in the chat. The um, so yeah, I mean it, it's about accepting the fact that being Latinx, that Latinidad is like a kind of quasi-cultural umbrella, and that under that there are different races and mixtures of races, and that we need to be loving um, and open and accepting of one another, and that there's hurt, that there are there, there's years of oppression, there are years of groups being pitted against one another that are going to sometimes make these interactions a little tough. There are going to be times when as a light-skinned Chicano, you know, trying to do the good work that um, in, I'm going to be working alongside uh, my, you know, Afro-Latinx and indigenous siblings in the fight. There are going to be times when my positioning in different situations are, is going to make people, is going to remind people of the mistreatment they've received at the hands of people like me, right? And I have to be aware of that and the privilege that redounds to me because of, you know, you know, my partial Anglo heritage and my last name and all these things as well, right? Um, and to utilize, as is, it's got to be the case with all of us, to utilize whatever privilege I have to the benefit of the entire community and towards the dismantling of the systems that 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 make the lives of, of Afro-Latinx people and indigenous Latinx people more difficult, more fraught, more oppressed, um, like, you know, because of the intersectionality of those identities than like perhaps my own life. Um, it, it ultimately, when we're talking about literature, you just have to be aware that, you know, even though we're racialized in the US, Latinx isn't a racial identity. There are different races within it. And, you know, that painting of all of us with that that broad, um, those broad strokes from that that brush of sameness is destructive. And, and what it does is it pushes some people within the Latinx community to reject Latinidad altogether. There are plenty of people um, from Latin American countries or whose ancestors came from African, uh, Latin American countries who are um, of African descent who are like, you know what, I'm not, I don't want to be called Latinx anymore. I want, I'm, I'm black and I'm from Colombia or, you know, and I, I'm a black Dominican or whatever. And, and I get that because there's just an ugliness that we have to fight against. I do think that the label 
of Latinx, of Latinidad has value, but it only has value in, in as much as we reform it and make it something that is inclusive and healing um, and that recognizes the, the, the bad things that happened in the past under that label and tries to amend them. Just like I think that this country could be salvaged. That, you know, I, I want to believe in our capacity to come together and, and defeat the, the forces of fascism at the ballot box and, and transform this country into what we all, you know, on, in, in, probably in this conversation want it to be. Um, but it takes work and it takes love and it takes openness and it takes, um, you know, if, if you're a, a more privileged Latinx person, it takes listening and accepting mm, when you've misstepped or when you haven't been as inclusive as other people and, and not getting upset about being called out on those things and try, and working to be better. Just like we want to see happen with white uh, people, we should like want that within our own community as well, right? And so, yeah, just when you're choosing books, be aware of that and, you know, be aware that you- And be intentional, ¿verdad? Intentional. Be intentional about it, right? You have a classroom full of, of Dominican uh, girls at your high school um, and you're choosing a book for them, you know, it, it, while, you know, Guadalupe Garcia McCall is awesome, maybe Elizabeth Acevedo might be like something that's going to like touch them a little bit more, you know, mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, be intentional about that and, mm -hmm. and have as much representation of those young women as you can, while also folding in other Latinx identities so that they're able to comprehend that that larger umbrella uh, under which they're they're also contained in this country. Ismay, I think we should turn to questions because there's a lot of great ones. Yeah, no, I was just texting Abby to be like, show that question about which books would you recommend? Because David already started answering it. Oh yeah, we can start with that one. I do want to hit some of the other ones before it that I'm seeing that I think are going to be really, I think it'll be helpful and important for us to address. But yes, mira, empieza por ahí, David. <laughs> Any so three books if you're able to bring in three books so we mentioned or or you can just use authors also elizabeth acevedo this acevedo well, i think would be like yeah the poet x is just so rich there's so yeah. much there yeah and i mean yeah and, and it's just incredibly written liz is, is an amazing author and any of her work would be great um i i, I mentioned Guadalupe garcia mccall um you know talking about using canonical books in conversation with other books. I think that using the Odyssey in conversation with some of the Mariposas is a really powerful thing. Uh, a, a, you know, a Latina version, like five um, Mexican American sisters going on their own Odyssey, which mirrors and complicates the, you know, Homer's Odyssey. Um, there are, um, just, oh my God just so many amazing books. I think about like, you know, children's books, uh, Yugi Morales' stuff is just amazing. Mm -hmm. um, when you, do you have some recommendations, Lorena? Yeah. I mean, like I think, in my shelf. Like start naming right. <laughs> No, no, but, you know, sometimes the way I answer this is, doesn't make people too happy because I don't always give books because I think that before we, because um, then we create a new canon, right? then we say just these. And then people just stick to those and then we leave so many others. And I, I think that it's so important to meet the needs of the young people in front of you. This is why if, if any of you follow me on social media, you know that I've said this before. We don't teach books. We teach young people. Right. And so who is sitting in front of me? OK, what are the skills we need to address? What what books will be useful for this particular group? 
Um, now, with that preface, yes, are there books that I love to turn to? There's too many to list. Definitely Poet X I use often. A, I, I like a lot American-born Chinese. I think there's so much there. Um, and I love a good graphic novel. I I think that a number of books by Jason Reynolds can be can be super useful. I think that, um, gosh, let me just, I don't even, there's so many. This one, my child was eating it. This is such a great resource. Um, this Latinx a, a anthology, the, you know, there's so much in there for us to to um, flesh out and to use. A, I was not prepared. Yeah, to I mean, oh my God, I can just, again, I can just name authors like Soraya Cordova, uh, yeah. Ana Mediano, um, you know, Ernesto Cisneros, Daniel Jose Older. I mean, you just like, you know, one place that I definitely would point uh, there, obviously Latinx, um, uh, the the festival has their thing, but also you have Latinx and Kidlit. That website has got great reviews and they like list every year the books that are coming out that year. And it's a great place to to keep track of things. Definitely look at the Pura La Prey um, um, awards uh, list. Look at the Americas award, look at the Tomas Rivera. Um, there are places for you to go to find really, really great recommendations. Mm -hmm. Meg Medina. Meg Medina, claro. So good. I know. It's there's so many, so then I freeze, you know, because I, I go, what about? Like, the bad thing is that there are friends and they're listening right now. And they're like, I know. I know. Right. Like, you know, her off my it's like you're at the awards and you forgot to, to thank your mom. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Um, I'm trying to look at my bookshelf. Oh, I always, I love a good study on Gabby, A Girl in Pieces by Isabel Quintero. That's such a rich one too, multimodal. Um, Julia Takes a Breath is really good. Oh, it's really good, 11th and 12th grade, really 12th, um, but it's a, a very good book. And what else do I have over there that I can see from here? You know, there's, a, there's one that's fairly new called Your Corner Dark. Um, he, his name is Desmond Hall, it's YA. It's set in Jamaica, which is, oh. I know like there's, I don't know that many YA, if any, that are set in Jamaica. Um, there's a lot of violence, but that's part of the, you know, that's that's at the crux of this. And it's not, it doesn't glorify it at all. It, it's, it, he does a really good job. That should be a movie. Um, he's a boy. Um, he's a boy, that's right. There's so many. Yeah. All right, I'm going to move us on to some other questions because okay, okay, there's okay. some really great ones. Let's, let's pull up Likens. Do you think the current backlash against inclusivity and diverse text is actually a sign Mm -hmm. of and a reaction to significant uh, significant progress? Yeah, that was a question I wanted to jump on. I think absolutely, absolutely. Um, I don't even know that this is hope or silver lining. I think it's factual, right? Uh, in the same way that you get TRUMP after Barack Obama, that's what we're facing here, right? You have Dignidad Literaria, you have Disrupt Text, and you have so many other people in the in the fields of education and literacy and just socially in general, publishing, writing, and speaking on this, particularly in the context of all of these murders for the past couple of years, since 2014, we're in the middle of Black Lives Matter still, right after Black Panther, right? Like this cultural shift is so evident that it necessitates, unfortunately, a pushback. That resistance is what we'll call the old guard for a second. Um, and here's the good news. They've lost before. Racism loses every time. Yeah. It's a horrible opponent, 
you know, racism will harm us and will distract us, pero eh, we win. We win. Look at the 60s. People died. Um, it was exhausting and not everything was achieved, but we are not the same nation that we were in 1955. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to be a different, we're never going to go back to pre-2014, pre-Black yeah. Lives Matter. And so we're not going to go back to anything before where we are now either. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if you just think about it, if you just think about it in terms of logistics, logistically, for for the 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 far right fascists to turn this into a white European republic, they would have to get rid of people, and that's that's not. There's no way that's going to happen. They tried. Um, yeah, they they tried. And, um, I still remember back under um, forty five the. The, the the idea was floated that the, he was going to begin to investigate people who had green cards, you know, who were residents oh, um, to see whether they had like um, legitimately, you know, gotten resident status. And my wife, who is a resident alien, was like, ah, pues ya, ya valió. <laughs> it's that's over. And I'm like, no, I mean, I don't I don't think that's going to happen um, just because the kind of uproar that would come about. I mean, you talk a big game, you can pose in front of a a Christmas tree with guns and, and like, you know, bluster and bloviate, and bloviate all you want. But at the end of the day, like Lorena says, um, there's no way to go back unless there is state-sponsored violence involved and the world will turn against that. Like we weren't yeah. alone in that fight. Hopefully so, we're not going there. Yeah. Hopefully. So talk, talking about the, the work and the difficulty and the sacrifice that goes into progress, there's a question by, Andrea Beatriz Arango, how do you have real conversations about equity in text and in classrooms when school admins, school board members, and superintendents are mostly white American? It's hard. It, it is really tough, but um, one of the starting places that I have is to, to, to kind of like deconstruct whiteness with them and say, you know, um, in, in the same way that people from our community um, who are of you know European descent are different from people like I'm thinking about the valley are different from uh, people of European de descent in Georgia or in New Jersey or in Montana or whatever that kind of cultural diversity which unfortunately is erased by by you know like whiteness or whatever um, is important I mean we don't want everyone's experiences to be the same the country is richer because of that of that diversity. And our classrooms will be richer if we bring in the diversity of these different places. Also, um, you want to have an educated, um, you know, group of, of people. You want for children um, from these communities that are not yours to to be well educated, to be able to think, to go to college, to be productive members of society. Um, you know, it, it, the, the, this notion that um that we can just like ignore their identities and like hope for the best is just not in in showing them studies showing them the kinds of things that Ismay was talking about the kinds of studies um that Lorena has looked at in producing her books there's research you know one of the things that school boards always want to see what superintendents see is what's the research here's the research that shows that um that cultural diversity and equity in the classroom is what you know works for students to be now at the end of the day it is true that if a school board and teachers and a superintendent don't particularly want 
for students from communities of color to be well educated and don't want them going to college and don't want them being professionals in the community, that it that that's an uphill battle. It's that in those cases you have to be courageous and shut the door and do what needs to be done for your students in your classroom and kind of just like forget their guidance altogether. Um, I, I've been in situations where not because of racism, but because of other reasons that I just had to do that, like just had to essentially um, go, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, whatever, and then go into my classroom and teach what needs to be taught and, and put my students first. And that's courageous teaching. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, you may find yourself in a position where you can't convince people that this is what's needed and you just have to do it anyway. And there are plenty of free resources that you can use. There are short stories you can bring in. There's lots of ways to bring in a diversity of text, even if you're not allowed to have a classroom set of books. Lorena, do you have anything to add? Because that dovetails into the, another question about strategic ways to influence what books are included in the curriculum. But I want to hear your your response to the first question and then this one, because David sort of hit them both without even realizing that something was coming up. Yeah, yeah, no, I can certainly make the connection. I think that it's important to be strategic where you are, um, which is funny because the question is the same. What are the strategic ways to influence the, the books that are included? You have to know your audience, meaning what is your goal and who are the people that you need to talk to strategically to convince to get there? You don't got to talk to all the admin. You don't have to talk to the whole school board. Not all those people are involved in what books are chosen and in how a school functions. And I don't think that it's necessary for us to go around and be the equity champion in all these places. That's a very exhausting job. Typically, our districts have a person hired that's getting paid for that. And your job is in your classroom with your students. Right. That should come first. Um, and you don't want to lose sight of that because then you end up a fired teacher and a fired teacher can't do the equity work in her classroom. Um, and so we don't want that. Right. And and with that comes some of what David was saying, pick your battles. Right. So that's the second one. Know what your goals are, who you're going to talk to and pick your battles. Is your battle to do an overhaul of the entire curriculum? I'm going to tell you right now that's not going to work. Could your battle be let me change all of the supplementary text that I select for this terribly whitewashed curriculum that I choose, that's a good first goal because you ain't got to talk to nobody but yourself. Maybe you've already done that and your next goal is to get one of the books, switch them out. That's a good measurable, achievable, possibly goal, right? So those are the strategic ways to address this stuff. Always paired to, as somebody said, they love their data. They sure do. So pick the data that because data can be used for anything. That's the good thing about numbers. It's also the bad thing about numbers. So you use that data. Oh, we have this percentage of students in my student body. How does that compare to the percentage of characters uh, featured in the books that we teach? I see a disparity. I want to address that. Right. So present a problem and then present the solution. Too often teachers present the problems. And I get it because I, I used to do that, too. And admin are looking at you like I have other problems I'm looking at. Right. So present the problem and immediately say, and I have a solution. Here it is. Because then that also puts you in this leadership position and it encourages them to say, huh, David knows what he's talking about. Like, OK, let me trust you on that and come with your professional organization statements. Use the document Ismay shared. Turn to the National Council of Teachers of English that have uh, like pages upon pages upon pages of position statements and research published by leaders in the literacy field to support this type of work, you know. I would also just add to find allies. I think um, you can find, hopefully wherever you are, you can find some allies, allies among the parents um, of your students. 
And I think you can definitely find allies among the students. And especially if you're teaching older students, they know how to get attention. They know and they love to be like socially active. Ask for help or, you know, rope them into the whole discussion. I think that would be a great way to initiate change. All right, let's see some other we have about I think we have time for maybe one more question to wrap it up. Let's see. There, um, there's so many amazing comments just reiterating all of the pearls that you guys have said that are just falling from your, your lips. Um, <laughs> Habría que recogerlas, perlas, and then sell them, right? <laughs> right, right. Did um did we talk? We talked about picture books, right? The picture book question was put up there about the importance of starting of starting young. We mentioned some there, you know, some picture book authors, but I think it's important. You know, I, I mentioned the older students. It's also really important to introduce diversity in the young kids. Absolutely. I mean, there's just some really, really great ones out there. Um, the, I, you know, as I said, Yui Morales is really great. Um, let's Born see. on the Water, Isaac Kiss on the Corner. Isaac Kiss on the Corner is beautiful. Book, yeah. Right now, beautiful. Yeah. I, think, um, I think that picture books are especially a powerful tool because as someone said in the chat, right? Like we need, we need that early anti-bias work. Yeah. Uh, because this is layered. As the years go on, things become sedimented and more complex and more nuanced and and things that used to just be idea become beliefs, right? And so picture books can be used very intentionally to build an anti-racist foundation in the early years. So not again, not having representation is important, but if all of the picture books that you have, for example, about Black folks feature them in a historical sense, in the middle of some type of civil rights movement or in relation to slavery, then you you have a problem too, right? So we want to have the range. For example, a, a, I am every good thing is a beautiful example of an anti-racist text, of a counter narrative specifically. Um, what else did I say? Which one did I say? Anyway, there's so many. There's so many hair books nowadays that could be a great unit, right? On like the exploration of natural hair and what that means and having conversations about what is pretty, what is beautiful, and celebrating the, the different hair types in that very classroom, especially when you're missing that hair type. When you are missing that type of diversity, because our country is so segregated that you know we're not actually very diverse in our schools. Um, and so when you're missing those representations and you have them in books, then we welcome them into our classroom. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then just kind of like to dovetail on that, um, uh, really good books that are about um like the um the indigenous um identity in in our culture are things like i think of um we are water protectors yeah there's that but i mean like within the latinas community like Gloria, oh, 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 sorry. like Gordia mesquas a recent book um um oh my god i can't believe i'm drawing a blank on um aisha what's the name of, of mariana's book aisha's like listening and she probably i can't think of it right now Chats, little Chatsky. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great one. Um, so there, there's a lot of books that are about like not just indigenous Latin Americans in the past, but indigenous people of Latin America in the present, mm. or, or like bridging from the past into the present, um, which I think is really important. You know, just in general, like native work, indigenous 
work from the Americas um, needs to present not just people of the past, people of the present, because they. Y los libros illustrated by Duncan. Duncan right? Duncan. Like all of those yeah. are great examples. And he he illustrated uh, Gloria Mesquez, so it's really great. Yeah. So, yeah, I so, also love there are, there are a lot of picture books that are published in English and then also in Spanish. So it yeah. would be really interesting if you have bilingual students in your classroom to have both available, so that that yeah. their language can also be validated. I think. All right, we yeah, have like, one. We have very few. My, like we have like one minute, but there's one more question I wanted to touch on before we sign off. Uh -huh. um, do you ever see intentionally naive, intentionally yeah. naive in education who, yeah, come around? I want you to. Hear, I, I want to hear the yes, so we can end on a high note. Yes, yeah. I mean, yeah, actually, yes, I have. Yeah. <laughs> I, have some, I have some people who who come around. Some people who just mm -hmm. have had blinders on, or who have just like thought about it differently, and it just mm -hmm. takes like a key moment, and and suddenly they're illuminated. I have hope for everyone. I mm -hmm. I, I believe in the redemptive power of mm -hmm. of doing this kind of work and and love, Bella. Yeah, of love because. You know, it's really easy to hate people. Um, and there are some people that like really feel deserving of hate on the far right. But like when you come at it with a love for the kids and you put right. that first, that kind of thing um, opens the minds of perhaps your opponents. Um, mm -hmm. that, you're, that you're being genuine about what you want to accomplish. Great. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. right. So we are, we're actually out of time. But I want to thank you, David and Lorena. Thank you guys so much for being here and for sharing all of your wisdom, all of your knowledge about this very important topic. And thank you all of the attendees for watching Disrupt Text, Finding Latinx Texts that Fit Your Curriculum at the Latinx Kidlet Book Festival. Please stay tuned for a short message from our sponsor, the National Council, Council of Teachers of English. And also don't forget to grab your digital educator gift bag the link was dropped earlier in the in the chat. So make sure you take that because there are some really great resources to help you. So thank you guys. Thank you for being here. Thanks for Bye. having me. Bye. Nos vemos. Adios.